Hello, and welcome to episode number 63 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. 2017 was the year that saw a sudden uptick of mainstream interest in the notion of UFOs following revelations arising from a groundbreaking article in the New York Times. This article describes so-called unidentified aerial phenomena, modern nomenclature for what had traditionally been referred to as unidentified flying objects, UFOs. These revelations suggested these objects and or phenomena had been documented and studied as part of an official Department of Defense program. This tacit acknowledgement of an official UFO program marked a sharp right turn when compared with the historical trend where the government had traditionally sought to suppress, dismiss, and even ridicule the notion of UFOs as part of official policy. Ever since that trailblazing article was first published, the interest in this topic has grown by leaps and bounds in the mainstream, even if it still feels painfully slow and incremental to those more familiar with the wealth of data suggesting there really is a there there and that there has been for a very long time. But nevertheless, the presence of these apparent vehicles that appear to be under intelligent control has led to inevitable questions around who might be behind them, either at the wheel, so to speak, or piloting them remotely from somewhere else. Industry insiders attest to the beyond next-gen capabilities of these craft, suggesting, startlingly, that they couldn't possibly belong to any contemporary nation-state player. And of course, in people's minds, that leaves open one enticing possibility, the notion that these may be the property of an extraterrestrial intelligence, a biological exoplanetary species who've come here to study us for reasons thus far largely unknown. For some people in our civilization, this notion is most welcome, because the thinking is that these more sophisticated others may be able to help us address some of our most intractable problems. For others, it prompts feelings of fear, forcing a reckoning around the notion that we may not be the apex species on the block after all. Of course, for those of us much more intimately familiar with the breadth and depth of the historical literature on this topic, these questions, while certainly profound, are just the proverbial tip of the iceberg. And that's because a deep dive into the actual data gathered over the decades suggests the presence of one or more extraterrestrial species in our midst may not be sufficient to explain the bizarreness of what has been observed and encountered by human beings around the world and across time. In the 1970s, trailblazing figures like Jacques Vallée and John Keel emerged, provocatively suggesting that these traditional nuts and bolts ET hypothesis was not the best fit for the events described in the literature. Vallée surprised many by drawing parallels between modern UFO encounters with supposed space aliens and encounters with the so-called fairy folk of deep human lore. By comparing and contrasting the nature of these various entities and encounters, Vallée forced a 20th century populace to wrestle with the notion that what we might be seeing is just a modern-day manifestation of a presence that has been with us since the very beginning. While Vallée's postulation is certainly a compelling one, after all, these striking parallels do exist, 
it's also important not to prematurely leap to that conclusion based solely on superficial similarities. And of course, this begs the question, how much overlap really exists between ancient fairy and even religious tradition and the modern-day UFO phenomenon? And how might we distinguish between a single intelligence with multiple manifestations and the presence of multiple intelligences perhaps arising from very different sources? These are the very matters we'll seek to engage with in this, the 63rd episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction to today's podcast, the article in the New York Times in 2017 focused on the apparent craft that had been observed as part of the ATIP program. Now, when it comes to the UFO phenomenon, truly, the real there there is the interaction with the apparent non-human intelligences behind these craft. The craft are a secondary matter and may not even be permanent structures much of the time. Again, the central interest here should be with the nature of the interactions with these intelligences that appear to be non-human, or certainly non-conventionally human. And when we look to the literature behind the UFO phenomenon, there really is a wealth of information there. People who have had peculiar experiences with various others, i.e. non-human intelligences, over time. Now, right off the bat, let's deal with a concern or a criticism that's put forward by the skeptical community or the debunker community when it comes to this kind of data regarding interactions with apparently non-human intelligences. Skeptics will claim this is so-called anecdotal data, i.e. hearsay, stories that people tell. We have no way to ascertain whether or not this really happened or not, and people are prone to making things up or misidentifying things, etc., what I would say here is what's convincing is the depth and breadth of the data. There's just so much of it. So even when you build in fairly healthy filters, allowing for plenty of room for some fraudulent claims, some misidentification, some mental instability, etc., there are still many, many, many cases, and many of them have striking overlaps, suggesting the most parsimonious explanation here, the most logical conclusion is that human beings really are encountering a different kind of intelligence, non-human, and that they have been for a very, very long time, and as we'll discuss in today's podcast, perhaps since the very dawn of our civilization. I would also add here that, of course, much of this skepticism, this criticism, comes from an a priori notion that these events can't possibly be happening, that they exist beyond the parameters of normality, of the expectations around the real world, and therefore they must not be true, they must not be factual. Now, it's interesting thinking back on other historical events where these kinds of claims were made. One particular one comes to mind where people who were farmers, people who were rural folk, were noticing rocks falling from the sky, fiery rocks, and they reported this in the town square. And of course, the officials in the town told these people, these poor common folk, that they were mistaken, they were delusional, no such thing could be happening. Of course, later on, such a thing as a meteorite was discovered, that yes, indeed, fiery rocks can fall from the sky. These are meteorites. And then it was acknowledged that these people were not making this up. They were not delusional. But again, the key here is initially, people in official 
function had the gall to tell these people they were delusional, that they weren't seeing what they were seeing, literally. All right, so now let's get into the kinds of encounters people have had within the so-called UFO phenomenon. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, many people, I would say most people, assume that if people are encountering sophisticated others that seem to be a non-human intelligence, the assumption is that these are space aliens. If they are biological beings, they look like that, then of course our assumption is they can't be from here, therefore they must be from space. But the truth is, when on-the-ground researchers like John Keel and Jacques Vallée actually interviewed witnesses, what they found was that the encounters were very strange, bizarre, even absurd. Bottom line, many of the encounters stretched the credulity of the notion that this is how space aliens would act. Now, of course, we can't trust our assumptions. If this is a non-human intelligence, we can't pretend to know how they would act exactly. But at the same time, if they are a biological species of a more sophisticated nature, we might have some sense of how they might act. And yet the encounters that people had flew in the face of these very basic assumptions. Again, involving lots of high strangeness, a lot of bizarreness, and even absurdity. If these really were space aliens here on some sort of scientific expedition, why were they acting in such strange ways? Could this really be space aliens arising from some far-flung star system? Of course, it wasn't that these alien craft were landing on people's lawn and these others were coming out and stopping for tea and biscuits. No, what often happens is that people are visited in the middle of the night and there's a strange overarching element to the entire encounter involving lots of high strangeness, feeling almost like an altered state of reality or consciousness or an alternate realm. This is very common in the UFO phenomenon literature, where the very nature of reality around the person being visited or contacted or abducted seems to change. The modulation seems to be different when they're in the presence of these others. And much of this involves a distortion of both space and time during these encounters. Now, when we think back to the dawn of the modern UFO era, we think of Kenneth Arnold and his sighting in the state of Washington. Now, what's interesting is at first blush, this looks like a classical UFO case of craft in the sky. But what's interesting is more recently, it's come out that Kenneth Arnold actually had experiences with high strangeness after this event. In the days following the sighting, he actually spotted orbs near his house and in his house. And this again is very, very common in the UFO phenomenon literature. It's been happening since we first documented these kinds of encounters. The only reason we hear about it more now is that there's less suppression. Many of those early ufologists just chose to not report those elements of the encounters because they seemed to fly in the face of the notion that these really were space aliens that were visiting us. So the holes in the data or the narrative had to do with that omission by the reporters, by the recorders of the events, not because the events didn't involve those elements to begin with. And of course, a book like Skinwalkers at the Pentagon has more recently really highlighted this connection between high strangeness or general paranormality and the UFO phenomenon. The OSAP program, which was a government-funded program, actually chose to investigate not just UFOs, but all co-arising anomalous phenomena. And why? Because historically it had already been made clear that these events do arise together, these elements arise together in the same event. 
that a UFO might be sighted in the sky and then orbs might be spotted on the ground or a person might have an experience of a distortion of space-time, etc. Poltergeist activity also has been noted in these kinds of encounters. And again, here one can see why those initial ufologists who really wanted to see this as space aliens were perplexed. Why would poltergeist activity be co-arising with a UFO sighting? And yet this happens time and time again in this phenomenon. Now, speaking of high strangeness, paranormality, and elements like poltergeists, we also find in the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon book this notion of the so-called hitchhiker effect, where people seem to be followed by some sort of intelligence, some sort of entity in an almost viral way long after they've left the premises of a place like Skinwalker Ranch. Sometimes even relatives, friends, or even social acquaintances of these people can also be impacted by this kind of poltergeist phenomena, which is titled the hitchhiker effect in this case and refers to a kind of social contagion. Now, what's interesting here is that this is a very new notion to many people in ufology, and it's kind of created quite a shocking effect. But ironically, in so-called hauntology, this has been a long-known phenomena. In other words, people who investigate ghosts and hauntings and things of that nature have long associated those kinds of encounters with this long-term hitchhiker effect. It's only new in ufology, and again, what I'm suggesting here is that it's because of a kind of false demarcation we place around these different kinds of encounters, as well as these different fields of study, when what we really should be doing is studying all of these encounters, all of these different kinds of phenomena, and look for the overarching patterns and what that might be telling us even about the nature of reality. Now, perhaps you might be wondering why there hasn't been more overlap between these different fields of study. Well, again, much of it comes down to biases, assumptions, and the desire to be accepted in the mainstream. In other words, ufologists long saw themselves as a kind of astronomer, just looking for space aliens traveling here from some exoplanet. But they saw themselves basically as scientific observers existing in the mainstream, and they were looking for data to find more acceptance in the mainstream. They do not want to be associated with people looking at ghosts and poltergeists because they don't think that's even real much of the time. They think that's fringe while they think ufology should be mainstream. Likewise, the hauntologists don't want to be associated with UFOs because they think that's too fringe. And so both sides don't end up talking to each other, don't compare data, and don't find these overlapping aspects of the data sets. It's only with books like Skinwalkers at the Pentagon that we begin to piece together a picture that suggests we might be seeing some overarching phenomenon that is evidenced in both hauntology and ufology. And by the way, if you're curious for a definition, Hauntology is defined in Wikipedia as a range of ideas referring to the return or persistence of elements from the social or cultural past as in the manner of a ghost. And by the way, speaking of overlapping phenomena, let us not forget that often, or at least on occasion, aliens, supposed aliens, greys for instance, have been spotted right alongside supposedly deceased relatives. For instance, on a previous podcast, I mentioned how Whitley Strieber recounts at one point he and his wife encountering gray aliens on one floor of his cabin in the New York wilderness, while people staying downstairs in the floor below encountered a deceased brother 
And interestingly, this person, this woman, didn't even know her brother had been deceased. He had been missing, but he showed up. She realized then he was deceased, but he assured her he was okay. And this happened at the very same time that gray aliens were being encountered by Whitley Strieber in the floor above. So the overlap is sometimes front and center. By the way, as a quick aside here, we've already discussed how people like Jacques Vallée and John Keel, when they looked at the data and when they investigated this phenomenon with boots on the ground, so to speak, interviewing witnesses and such firsthand, that they came to the conclusion that the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, was perhaps not the best fit for the totality of the data that was being observed. Now, interestingly, in hauntology, there has also arisen counter-hypotheses to the notion that when we see a kind of translucent humanoid figure, that we're actually seeing someone from the historical past, a ghost, in other words. Some people have suggested that perhaps we are seeing human beings from an alternate Earth. So again, here we have the kind of interdimensional hypothesis coming in again, but applying itself to hauntology. And interestingly, when I think back to my own encounter that I discussed before, one of the things I noticed most of all was that this humanoid entity looked surprised when I saw it slash her. Now, it occurs to me when I think about this, that that surprise might not just mean that it slash she was surprised I could see it, but rather that that look of surprise was because it was suddenly seeing us. In other words, we were haunting it just as it was haunting us in a way. You could say it's worth considering anyway. And again, it's a good lesson in not jumping to conclusions too quickly. In other words, in this case, the surprised expression I remember seeing on it slash her face might mean more than one thing. Okay, so so far we've discussed an overlap between hauntology and ufology, or so-called ghosts or poltergeist activity, and the UFO phenomenon. But as we mentioned in the introduction, via the work of people like Jacques Vallée, we also know about an overlap between fairy lore and ufology, or the UFO phenomenon. Now, an interesting work to look towards here to learn more about these entities and people's encounters with them is a book called The Secret Commonwealth, which was penned by a man named Robert Kirk. And the description of the book is as follows. The Secret Commonwealth, a classic enchanting document of Scottish folklore about fairies, elves, and other supernatural creatures. Late in the 17th century, Robert Kirk, an Episcopalian minister in the Scottish Highlands, set out to collect his parishioners' many striking stories about elves, fairies, fauns, doppelgangers, wraiths, and other beings of, in Kirk's words, a middle nature betwixt man and angel. For Kirk, these stories constituted strong evidence for the reality of a supernatural world existing parallel to ours, which he passionately believed demanded exploration as much as the new world across the seas. Kirk defended these views in The Secret Commonwealth, an essay that was left in manuscript when he died in 1692. It is a rare and fascinating work, an extraordinary amalgam of science, religion, and folklore, suffused with a spirit of active curiosity and bemused wonder that fills Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy and the works of Sir Thomas Brown. The Secret Commonwealth is not only a remarkable document in the history of ideas, but a study of enchantment that enchants in its own right.
unquote. Now, as I mentioned, we know much about the overlap between elements of the UFO phenomenon and elements of the fairy lore because of the work of Jacques Vallée, specifically in his groundbreaking book, Passport to Magonia, which we've discussed several times before. Some of the overlap, for instance, involves orbs, believe it or not, and disorientation in space and time. Even abduction is part of the literature when it comes to the fairies. They are also known to be shapeshifters at times, which also fits with elements of the UFO phenomenon data. So indeed, there is some striking parallel. These are entities that we don't tend to come across in our normal waking world, or what you might call consensus reality, and yet we do come across them in a kind of altered state of consciousness or an alternate kind of realm, where a kind of overlay of high strangeness is part and parcel with the experience itself. Now, I already mentioned how hauntologists and ufologists sometimes steer clear of each other because they're convinced the other is too fringe. In the same way, those who study fairy lore tend to not want to be associated with UFOs, or at least that's long been the case, and vice versa. Again, because they want to be seen as a legitimate study and not associated with other fringe elements or fields of study, lest it undermine their own credibility. But again, just as with hauntology, just as with ufology, the study of fairy lore suggests that these are entities that people really have interacted with in a real way, and that there is, again, striking overlap with these other two fields we already discussed. Now, moving on from ghosts and poltergeists and UFOs and aliens and fairies and goblins, etc., let's now turn our attention to what are sometimes called the celestials, here we also have quite a bit of overlap with these other fields of study we've talked about and the entities that are included in those fields of study. So again, we ask ourselves, are these really different entities or are they different manifestations of the same underlying intelligence? Now with the celestials, some people use the term extra-dimensional here. And this is to denote the fact that these may be arising from outside the space-time construct altogether i.e. they are not biological beings from either our physical universe or a parallel physical universe. So you have something like an ET, an extraterrestrial, which would be a biological being from our own physical universe, some exosolar kind of planet. And then you have interdimensionals, which are supposedly, perhaps, beings coming from a different parallel physical universe, but still biological beings. And then there are these celestials that may be extra-dimensional in the sense that they aren't arising from the space-time construct at all. Now, these are often seen as primarily composed of light, or at least that's how we perceive them, and as such, their shape can often shift in real time. But they seem to have no physical structure to them. Often that's the case anyway. Another key central element here is a decidedly, for lack of a better term, spiritual element, a sense of deep ultimate meaning which is associated with these beings. When we think back to the two episodes I did on Dorothy Isaac, she seemed to be encountering these entities, and they were primarily positive. She actually saw them as angels. Now, of course, she came from a Catholic background, so that's somewhat par for the course, you might argue. But she also, at one point, encountered negative entities, and this was associated with her having a fearful state. So once again, there we see how our consciousness plays a role, 
And by the way, that's true of all of these kinds of encounters. There's overlap there too. That's a key central element. But most of the time, Dorothy encountered positive beings, which she saw as spiritual entities coming from outside space-time itself. And these particular others she saw as leading her towards something, something meaningful. There was a purpose there. Now, some will look at her story and others like it and ask, why do these others, if their goal is to help us, choose such relatively obscure individuals? Why not appear on the White House lawn? Well, for one, the consciousness piece, the openness and general energetic demeanor of the people involved seems to be key. Only certain people may be able to be contacted in this way. Secondly, these kinds of cases, Chris Bledsoe is another one much like it, may be serving to slowly inoculate us to the presence of these others so that they may eventually play a more central role. When you look at the ramp-up of various aspects of the phenomenon of late, one can easily draw that conclusion. Although, once again there, we have to be careful not to assume it's all one thing. All right, so now let's step back for a moment and think back on the different kinds of entities, the different fields of study we've discussed so far. Everything from UFOs and aliens, to fairies and goblins, to celestial beings or angels, to ghosts and poltergeists. Is it really the case that these are all one category, ultimately? Different manifestations of the same underlying intelligence? Even if you exclude ghosts, for instance, or human-looking beings, although that's central in the UFO phenomenon as well, so I'm not sure we can do that. But even if you try that, looking at just what Jacques Vallée talked about with the fairy lore, for instance, and ufology, and even encounters like that from Fatima, where the Catholic Church interpreted it as a manifestation of the Virgin Mary. When we look at those kinds of encounters, fairy lore, religious history, the UFO phenomenon, can we confidently say that is actually one central intelligence manifesting differently, or perhaps just being interpreted differently, by human beings according to our cultural frameworks and such, depending on what our worldview is, what we think is possible, etc. Personally, I am actually suspicious of this attempt to reduce one kind of category to another or to collapse two categories into one. I'm not convinced that the fairy lore represents the same beings or entities or intelligences that we encounter in the UFO phenomenon. That may be the case sometime. It may be a case of mistaken identity sometimes, because there is even evidence that some fairies look a bit like gray aliens and vice versa. So you can see how people would get mixed up. But bottom line, this comes down to the difficulty people have in accepting the possibility of a very, very rich, very populated, multidimensional kind of reality. To step back and think about how I began this episode, I talked about how the mainstream is finally reckoning with this notion that others may be here. And again, most people leap to the conclusion that these would be ETs, extraterrestrial biological beings. The notion of interdimensionals, extradimensionals, celestials, ultraterrestrials, cryptoterrestrials, all these other possibilities are not really even being considered by the mainstream yet. They have a long way to go. So what I'm saying here is that it's one thing for people to accept the notion that extraterrestrials may be here. That's not a huge stretch, and most scientists, astronomers especially, believe life does exist elsewhere in the universe. There's just too many planets in the cosmos 
that if you allow for even a small percentage of those to be habitable planets, then you're going to likely find civilizations. And based on the history of the cosmos, the length of the history of the cosmos, how old it is, it's very likely that some civilizations might be very, very, very beyond us. They could have been developing technology for as much as a million or a billion years beyond us. So that would certainly entail them being able to come here, perhaps even break into our reality through a wormhole kind of thing. And that might explain what we see. It's one thing for people to reckon with that possibility, but we're asking much more than that here based on the data and based on the hypotheses we're talking about. We're saying in addition to that, we want people to be open to the notion of interdimensionals, that these beings are breaking in from parallel realities, that possibility, that there could also be crypto-terrestrials, beings that are actually here and have been here all along, but have the capacity to tune themselves up and down in such a way that we don't usually perceive them. And then, of course, there's bringing in the celestial possibility of these beings that might exist extra-dimensionally, outside the space-time construct altogether. The challenge is there. Some people who opt for reductionistic materialism and believe that everything that exists must be material and must be measurable and must be visible, basically, will have a hard time with this idea of spiritual beings. And they will think this harkens back to the church's notion from the Middle Ages, and that won't be popular with them. On the other hand, you will have religious adherents who will consider these all to be angels and demons. And as I've discussed many times, often religious leaders will describe these most likely as demons, that even if they're doing good things, apparently, they will believe these to be deceptive entities ultimately because of their interpretation of scripture and such and their overarching suspicion of anything that looks new and different. So some people in our civilization, I'm saying, will reject the notion of spiritual beings. Others will embrace it, but assume it must fit within a fundamentalist Christian perspective, or in other parts of the world, perhaps a fundamentalist Islamic perspective on what these beings can be. So they'll want to fit it into a creation narrative that is part of their religious tradition. Now, I think it's key to focus on this for a moment because I see this happening a lot, something that actually troubles me. I find frustrating that this happens so often. It's one thing to look at religious history and acknowledge that entities were being encountered. I think that's very legitimate. I think that's historical. I think it really did happen. However, where we make a mistake, I think, is when we assume that the interpretation of those beings, their nature, is something we also have to adopt because it's found in some sort of scriptural tradition. We have to remember that just like us, those were human beings encountering the anomalous, apparent non-human intelligences, and then trying to form a reality construct around it, a sense of meaning, a sense of ontology around it. I think our best option, our best hope at getting at the root of this is to separate the data, the experience, the elements of the experiences from the interpretation of them. Only by doing that, both in terms of religious history, as well as contemporary UFO phenomenon history, can I think we get closer to a better understanding of what might be going on. In other words, I think we have to try to get down to the data that references the elements themselves, the experiences themselves, not the interpretation of the experiences. Only by getting to that clean data do I think we can then go about 
generating new hypotheses that take into consideration all the elements we've discussed today. Now, if we think back to the Secret Commonwealth book that I mentioned earlier, in that case, he was actually picturing beings that exist between the angels and the humans. In other words, beings that are not necessarily extra-dimensional or human, but something that can exist right alongside us that have something of both, a kind of liminal being that is able to effectively traverse those two different kinds of domains. So, as we know, there are multiple hypotheses put forward to try to make sense of this data. For ufologists, they sometimes assume that fairies are simply gray aliens. And for people who study fairy lore, they sometimes assume gray aliens must be fairies. In other words, the reaction, the response, the conclusion is to reduce one to the other, to collapse these categories into a singular one, and usually the one that's most favored by that particular researcher. I don't think that's helpful. We can see the same tendency when religious adherents, people with a religious worldview, look at this data and assume not only that these are spiritual beings, all of them, in other words, what we would call extra-dimensionals, according to today's discussion, but that they are the spiritual beings from a particular religious dogma set and reality construct. From my point of view, that's putting the cart before the horse, and that's the case for each of those examples I just cited, where we see this tendency to collapse categories or to reduce one form to another. From my point of view, that's lazy thinking. The data doesn't suggest we should do that necessarily. And it's a sign that we are letting our own prejudices pollute the data. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.